Psalm 91. Let me read it. You follow along with me. He who dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in Him will I trust. Surely He shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. He shall cover thee with His feathers and under His wings shalt thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flieth by day, nor for the pestilence that walketh in darkness, nor for the destruction that wasteth at noonday. A thousand shall fall at thy side, and ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. Only with thine eyes shalt thou behold and see the reward of the wicked, because thou hast made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the Most High, thy habitation. There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over thee, to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and the adder, the young lion and the dragon, shalt thou trample underfoot. Because he hath set his love upon me, therefore will I deliver him. I will set him on high, because he hath known my name. He shall call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. We have been in a series of very puzzling psalms. Uh, in fact, at Pine Bluff, I shared some thoughts again out of Psalm 89, which I still see as one of the most interesting psalms just because of the conundrum that the psalmist is expressing, his perplexity, the riddle. He can't figure out what's happening. Uh, Psalm 91 is in some ways just as perplexing as Psalm 89 and even 88 that we studied before it, in that it, on the one hand, everything we read here, we nod our head to, it all sounds very nice and very good, but on the other hand, as we'll see in a minute, does this correspond to the reality that you and I uh, meet with every day, day in and day out? And hopefully I'll get my point across here in a minute. You'll see what I'm talking about. First thing I want you to notice about the psalm is how the person speaking changes. Uh, One of the things you need to pay attention to when you study the Scripture is the persons, whether it's first person, second person, third person. Uh, You know, if it's first person, it's me, I'm speaking. Second person, I'm speaking to you. Uh, Third person, some party out yonder. I want you to notice as you go through this psalm how it forms like almost like a conversation. There's different people talking. Let, let's, let me show you what I'm talking about. Look in verse 1. It starts, He, He who dwells. So notice we're talking, who, we asked ourselves, who's doing the talking? Who's speaking? The psalmist, apparently. 
Okay, and that's to say God speaking through the psalmist, but by divine inspiration, the psalmist is talking about somebody else, a third person party here, he, whoever this is, that abides in the secret place of the Almighty. Okay, but notice in verse 2, the shift, I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge. In other words, we were talking about he out here, he who trusts in God. Now we're talking about I will do this. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress. In other words, we're no longer talking in the third person. We're talking in the first person now. This is the person himself saying these things. But then notice the third verse. Surely he will deliver thee from the snare of the fowler. And from now on, for the next several verses, we're, we're almost in the second person. We're talking of you. He will deliver you. The psalmist still seems to be the speaker, but now he is speaking of God delivering you. And just notice, as you go down here in verse 4, He shall cover thee, that is you, with his feathers under his wings, shalt thou, you, shall trust. Uh, His truth shall be your shield and buckler. Do Do you see what I'm saying? That in three verses, we've had three switches. It's like a different conversation. The psalmist speaking of somebody else. Uh, the psalm is speaking of himself, and now the psalm is speaking to you. And this second person uh, continues all the way down through verse 13. Notice verse 13, Thou, you again, shalt tread upon the lion and the adder, the young lion, the dragon, shalt thou, you, trample underfoot. Okay, so it stays constant from verse 3 down through verse 13. And then at verse 14, because he has set his love upon me. Who's talking now? God. God speaks. Because he, whoever this is that trusts in me, hath set his love upon me, therefore will I deliver him. I will set him on high, because he has known my name. Notice the person speaking has shifted away from the psalmist himself to God himself. So just first of all, notice that this whole psalm sort of takes on the tone of we're, we're sitting there listening uh, to a conversation like a fly on the wall. The psalmist speaking about somebody else. The psalmist speaking about himself. The psalmist speaking to you and me. And then at the end, God himself speaking of the one who trusts in him. So, you with me? You see, you see how the flow of the psalm goes? Now, in general, this psalm, is a expression of the blessing that attends the life of one who utterly and completely and thoroughly trusts and rests in God. Uh, that is put in verse 1, the one who dwells in the secret place of the Most High. The secret place. Anybody got a secret place in their home? Well, you won't tell me where it is because it wouldn't be a secret place anymore, would it? <laughs> you got that secret place, the place where you hide stuff, stuff that's precious to you, stuff that you want to hang on to, you don't want the thief to find. That's your secret place. And notice that they who abide and dwell in the secret place are going to abide under his shadow. There's a lot of figures of speech here that this is a one who we say rests in God, one who has fled to God. Uh, you'll notice that the various ways of expressing God to the one trusting in Him is that God is His abiding place. Notice He abides under the shadow. Uh, Notice in verse 2, He is the refuge of the one who trusts in Him. He's also, notice, 
the fortress of one who trusts in Him. Now keep in mind, we're in the days of very primitive warfare. Uh, used to, I'm just thinking how much has changed in warfare. Used to, you always wanted to get up on the high ground. You want to get up above everybody else where you can throw stuff down on them. In today's warfare, you don't want to be up high. That's where everybody can see you. You want to be down. You want to be below ground if you possibly can. You don't want the drones to get you uh, because they can see you up there on high. So everything has reversed in the days of modern warfare. But in the days of ancient warfare, the fellow who is in a refuge, that is up on a rock, a high place, with steep cliffs, or the fellow who's in a fort. Uh, we think of the forts uh, as, as one of the things learning going into England was the castles there were not normally inhabited by the people. Uh, they went there when they were being invaded. That became their fort, sort of like forts out on the old, the old west. People didn't live in the forts normally, but when the Indians go on the warpath, everybody goes to the fort. Because once you're inside the walls of the fort, you're pretty much okay. And so notice that's the idea that they who trust in God have looked to God as a shelter, as a refuge, as their fortress. And then there's this wonderful figure that God will cover them with his feathers. I remember having a conversation with some Mormon missionaries out west about whether God had a physical body or not. And they argued that, of course, you have to understand, they're arguing because Joseph Smith said he saw in a vision the father in a bodily form and the son in a bodily form and so forth. So to be true to the vision of Joseph Smith, they say that God has a physical body, as a body like we have. And they say, see, the Bible talks about God's eyes. It talks about God's hand, his arm. Think of all the figures of speech. And I said, yeah, but if that's true, he must also have feathers like a chicken. Because Psalm 91 speaks of the fact that he's going to cover us with his chicken. Clearly, when we speak of God's eyes and arms and hands, we're speaking in what's called an anthropomorphism. Anthropo, man, morpha, means like. We're using a man-like figure of speech to apply to God. When we speak of God's eyes, we simply mean, like we would say, what do you see? What do you know? He sees everything. Sometimes he's described as having seven eyes. The idea of the seven eyes of the Lord wandering through the earth. That is, seven being the perfect number, he sees everything is the idea that that's being expressed. So, I guess you could call this a chickamorphism or whatever. We're talking about having chicken uh, next Sunday. Well, this is the figure of speech. But we all know what this means. We would not say this means God has feathers, but we understand the allusion to a bird with his feathers covering, or her feathers covering her chicks, under his wings shalt thou trust. So it's the figure of, of a bird. And notice the figure of a bird goes on uh, in verse 3, because it says God will deliver them from the snare of the fowler. Somebody tell me what a fowler is. He's a, he's a bird catcher. A bird, a bird trapper, a fowler. But he's a guy that plays around with birds. <laughs> uh, in other words, we, say, we talk about something being foul. Well, that's F-O-U-L. Foul means it stinks. Uh, F-O-W-L means it speaks of a bird. Right? Okay. So the fowler is somebody who traps birds. Remember, as strange as it seems to us, that Jesus even spoke about sparrows. You can buy them for a penny. You remember, or two, two for a penny? What do you say? Who remembers? Two pa- sparrows for a penny. 
In other words, real poor folks that don't have anything else, they can go down there and buy two sparrows for a penny. As strange as it appears to us, they were actually eating these little sparrows, beats nothing, and they were cheap. So somebody was catching these things. And so the idea is, is that God will spare us like a bird who is walking into a trap. God will spare us from the snare of the fowler. You'll notice that there's this God who is our refuge, our shelter, our the wings that cover us. He's described in the next verses as protecting us in so many ways. The first one, the one I've already mentioned, from the snare of the fowler. But notice as well, from the pestilence. What's the pestilence? Who said? Disease. Uh, usually, we, we, we have homicide means kill a man. Suicide means kill yourself. What's pesticide? Kills bugs, yeah. Okay, so this kills the pests. And the idea was is that pests um, in the ancient world were the carriers of disease. So this is to protect you from the pestilence, that is the disease that is being transmitted um, by fleas on a rat or something like that in the case of the bubonic plague or the black death or the, all the other plagues that have come upon the earth. And so notice the second thing in verse 3, not only from the fowler that would catch you like someone would snare a bird, but from the noisome pestilence, this disease. Notice as well down in verse 5, the allusion to the terror at night. Anybody ever get scared of the boogeyman? When's the boogeyman come out? When it gets dark. I mean, the boogeyman's in the closet, of course, you know, in the middle of the night. And so, when it gets dark, we have all these terrors that affright us, that we're afraid of. Notice as well, though, he will protect us not only from the boogeyman, the terror at night, he protects us from the arrow that flies by day. Obviously, nobody's going to be shooting a lot of arrows, at least in the ancient world, in the middle of the night, because they can't see you. But in the daytime, they can see you, they can target you, and so he protects you from the unseen frights. At night, he protects you from the known dangers during the day. Then go on a little further. He says, in fact, in verse 7, a thousand will fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it's not going to happen to you. Uh, by the way, historically, this psalm has been employed in a couple of different scenarios over and over again. One is a soldier going into battle, quoting this psalm, because this is the idea. A thousand will fall at your left hand, ten thousand at your right hand, but you won't fall. You will be protected. Or, in other cases, those who go into the pestilence. To, to the plague, to deal with people, and of course in the Middle Ages, uh, the Black Death and so forth that swept Europe and, and almost depopulated Europe. It's hard for us to even grasp the sheer numbers, the population that died during these plagues. And many times there were people who, and Christian people, would put themselves in harm's way, uh, expose themselves to the plague to care for those that were sick and dying. And some of them were miraculously protected. A number of stories you can find of folks that for no, no good reason would live. Most of the time when they would go and do this, uh, it was certain death. 
It was just a matter of time until they came down with whatever these people are dying of. But in a few cases, there were those who were almost miraculously preserved, and that's what's being spoken of here. So historically, this, this psalm has been applied to those two situations. Someone dealing with plague, with death, sickness, disease. On the other hand, those who are walking and going into battle, where there are maybe a thousand that are going to fall in the battle. And so they quote this to apply in those circumstances. But notice it's more than that. This psalm just doesn't talk about pestilence or eras. It talks about everything. Uh, Notice in verse 10, There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh your dwelling. I mean, not one bad thing will ever happen to you. Why? Well, verse 11 tells you, Because for he shall give his angels charge over thee, to keep thee in all your ways, they shall bear thee up. In other words, you've got God's angels watching out for you. When you trip, when you fall, they're there to catch you. You won't dash your foot against a stone. I mean, this sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Then he says you can walk. You can walk on the adder. You know what an adder is? Poisonous snake. You can step on the snake. You can step on the not just step on the snake, you can trample the snake and the dragon under your foot. In other words, you will be victorious over over these things. And so, the last thing that's said here is God saying, because you have set your love on me, I will deliver you. I'll, you know my name. You'll call upon me. I'll answer you. Notice the I wills. See that list of I wills? Sounds a whole lot like the new covenant. God unilaterally dec- uh, declaring that he, I'll be I'll answer him, I'll be with him, I'll deliver him, I'll honor him, I'll satisfy him with long life, I'll show him my salvation. That's a pretty good list. Anybody find anything missing here? I mean, it's just pretty much the complete package. Everything that we call good and life is here being promised to the one who dwells in the secret place of the Almighty. Just one problem. Anybody know anybody that this applies to? Have you ever met one person that can say, notice that this, you're talking about health and wealth now. This isn't just faith healing. This is better than faith healing. Because to have faith healing, somebody's got to get sick. Right? You can't heal somebody that's not sick. I mean, how do you how do you heal a blind man unless you got a blind man? Or heal open the ears of a deaf man unless you got a deaf man? I mean, you got to have one. In order to heal them, this isn't even promising healing. This is promising you never even get sick. You'll never even have the problem. This is a shield in battle. Thousands falling, uh, at least 11,000. 1,000 over here, 10,000 over here. 11,000 people falling all around you, but you don't get hit by the arrow. You're protected. God is your shield, your buckler. You're being shielded. Anybody know anybody? It's got that kind of track record who can say that, oh, oh yeah, yeah. In fact, as, as, but as we read that the first time through anyway, did anybody think that? Did you say, man, that's, that's hard to believe? Or did most of you say, well, yeah, that's, that's right. That's, I think most of us, when we read the words, this sounds, okay, yeah, okay, yeah, the man that trusts in God, he's got it made, he's shielded, he's protected, he's, it sounds exactly like we think Life ought to be. 
good things happen to good people. Right? That's how we think life works. That's the way it should be. And when we see this, we say, well, they are, there's the, there it is. There's good things happening to good people. They trust in God. God looks out for them. Nothing can harm or hurt. My problem is just saying, can you show me one example where this is the way it is? Let's take, you know, let's think, let's not, I mean, let's not pick one of us because we make pretty lousy examples probably. I'm not sure you could say of any of us that we completely and totally trust in the wings under the feathers of our God. Most of the time we're scurrying outside the, the wing, the wing zone. You know, we're out there somewhere. But if we were to search the Bible for someone who is an example of faith, of trust, I would say the Apostle Paul would come real close to being about as good a person we could find. Would you agree to that? What would you say, if you look at the career, the life of Paul, does this come close to describing his life? (laughs) I, I think I keep going back to when he was stoned and left for dead at Derby under a pile of rocks. You remember this is the place where they wanted to worship him. He, he and Barnabas had gone there, and they called Barnabas Jupiter and called him Mercury, and they wanted to sacrifice a cow. The priest of the temple of Jupiter came out wanted to offer a cow to him. I mean, they're wanting to worship him one day. A couple of days later, they're stoning him. That shows you the fickleness of human nature. And I've often thought, well, why, when those people went back to throw those rocks, why didn't God put an invisible shield around Paul so they just bounce off? Or, or why didn't the angel, every time they went to take an aim, hit their arms so they'd miss? And yet, notice, Paul miraculously was preserved, but he was reserved, preserved through the stoning, not from the stoning. He crawled out from under a pile of rocks where they had left him for dead. And he went back through the churches they had established in Asia Minor, teaching them that we must through great tribulation enter into the kingdom of heaven. And he had the bruises to show it, the wounds, the scars. And so Paul's whole life was a life of being... I keep saying every ship he got on went to the bottom. He talks about being shipwrecked. How many times? And that was before the one going to Rome. I mean, the thing may look like it'll float to you and me. If you put Paul on it, that baby's going to the bottom. I mean, it's just a given. That thing's going to sink. You would have thought, this is Christ's number one draft pick. This is his point man to take the gospel to the Gentiles. This is a man who trusts in Christ, who trusts in God. And look at the things. What about sickness? I don't know what that thorn in the flesh was in 1 Corinthians 11, but it was some kind of physical infirmity. Something was plaguing him. There have been guesses that it was his eyesight. Something about his eyes, because he mentions his eyes uh, to the Galatians in that epistle. We don't have any. We don't have any idea what it was, but it was some sort of a physical affliction that God intentionally gave to him to keep him from being puffed up above measure and to keep him dependent upon the grace of God. So I'm saying, if Paul's about as good example of a truster, a believer in God as we can possibly find in the Bible, and this doesn't even come close to describing him. Yes, sir? Enoch walked with God. We we just don't know enough about Enoch, I guess. But uh, 
we, we look, David would be, a, I think, the most Christ-like man in the Old Testament, and yet even David's life, the sorrows that he experienced at the end of his days, um, hardly match up with this. So, on the one hand, yes, Daryl? Well, why not Christ? Well, I knew somebody's going to get around to that. And uh, you may can see that's where I'm working towards, is that it seems to me that there's only one personality in the Bible to which this can completely apply, and that is to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and I'll elaborate that. Daryl, you're, as usual, out front, way ahead, avant-garde, you know, ahead of everybody else. Let me, let me finish up here and I'll get to your point. But I think you're right. I think this does apply to Christ. And that it really, He's the only one that it truly applies to directly. Directly. Back to my original thought is that no one else has this kind of a track record. No one else can say absolutely nothing ever harmed me because I trusted in God. I was protected from everything that came along. Not one, never did I get sick, never did I have any problems. I was delivered from every trial I was ever in. Jesus, on the other hand, up to the point of Gethsemane, is one that we could say that this does seem to apply to. In the sense that, first of all, think of deliverances. Do you remember how many times they went to stone him? And what did he do? He just walked through the middle of wasn't his time. One time. They were way ahead of their time. He was protected. He was shielded. May I point out to you that the devil thinks this psalm applies to Jesus. James, you're shaking your head. Why? Exactly. During the temptation, you remember he was taken up to the pinnacle of the temple. The devil told him to jump off because it is written, he shall give his angels charge over thee, so forth. They shall bear in their hands, they'll bear you up lest you dash your foot against stone. Now, the devil clearly thought this text applied to Jesus. Maybe somebody else, but certainly to Jesus. That you could jump off the temple without fear because God has promised to protect you with His angels. He will not allow any harm to befall you, because this is what He's promised. The devil applies this to Jesus. Now, the devil misquotes this. Anybody know how? You almost got to go back and compare the accounts, don't you? I'll make it simple for you. I'll give you a hint, a clue. In verse 11 where he says, For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. That phrase the devil omits. And that's the important phrase. Because what Satan was attempting to do was to get Jesus to do something that God had not ordained. And saying, basically, you can do anything you want to do without fear of the consequences because God has promised right here to bear you up with his angels. But the part that he left out is the part about your ways. The point is, is that in the ways that God has ordained, you will be kept, but not otherwise. 
And so I began to search for ways to how in the world then do we apply this? And, and Daryl's suggestion is the one that most naturally comes to mind. And there's a couple of other ways I want to mention. But just notice that first of all, it does seem to apply to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that absolutely nothing could harm him. He was protected. He was walking in the ways of God. And absolutely nothing, although he did suffer, he suffered without food. But that was a fast. That was voluntary. There was no harm that could befall him. He would walk on water, try to drown him. That's going to be tough. But notice that at Gethsemane, something changes. And the question is, what happened at Gethsemane? And at Gethsemane, he prayed, let this cup pass from me, if it be possible. What's in that cup? That's our sin. That's the wrath of God for our sin. And that from that moment on, everything here goes down the drain because from that moment on, he's standing in our place. He's receiving what? It's no longer good things happening to a good person. It's wrath happening to one who is bearing our wrath. And so this seems then to clear up some of the mystery. Who in the world could this apply to? And then there perhaps is another way of looking at it. It is the way that you and I will one day experience in heaven because of the cross. We, in other words, if Christ has taken our place, that what happens at Calvary is the bad things that happen to bad people are placed on this good person. Would you say that's true? In other words, our sin, our unrighteousness, is placed on this righteous person. He has made sin for us, but there's another half to the equation that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Bad things are happening to him so that good things can happen to us. And that one day, already good things are happening to us because of him. Because of bad things happening to him. You agree? Good things. But not unmitigated good. Not unmingled good. In this world, we're still in a mix of good things and bad things happening. But one day, because of bad things happening to the good man, good things, only good things, are going to happen to you and I. Because I read in the book of Revelation that one of the things that makes heaven heaven is the fact there's no more curse. The curse that brought all these things, war and death and pestilence, disease and famine, all that, the curse that brought all that will be removed. Yes, Barry? Well, that's my third point. And I tell you what, you, you try to preach to theologians and you just got them running, running all ahead. There is, I was going to end with that. And, and if I can elaborate, Barry, if you'll let me. Uh, <laughs> uh, there are those who look at it yet one other way. In that, in the long run, in a real sense, because we are in Christ. Even though we go through, we experience some of these things, can anything really bad happen to us in this life? That even the bad thing is worked for our good. Um, Bill Sasser, uh, he knew old Roth Barnard, by the way. Bond and I have been talking about Roth Barnard. He told one of Roth Barnard's 
stories at the conference yesterday or this morning. That's why I can remember it is this morning. I hadn't slept yet. And he said Barnard talked about walking into this old general store in this little old country place in Georgia. And the old men were sitting around the pot-bellied stove carving, whittling. Any of y'all remember those days? The old men just sitting in the store around the stove in the wintertime whittling. And they got to looking on the floor and there was these hound dogs that this guy was whittling. And he picked up one of these hound dogs and he was looking at it and he said, this is just amazing. He said, you can see the ears and the tail and everything. He t- turned to this old boy. He said, how in the world did you do this? And he says, well, I just get me a stick of wood in this hand and a knife in this hand and I cut away everything that doesn't look like a hound dog. <laughs> what Romans eight twenty eight? we are all things are working together for good to them who love God who are the called according to his purpose for whom he did foreknow he also did predestine to be what conform to the image of his son God is whittling away everything on us that doesn't look like Jesus and so in the long run what may hurt may just be a knife cut at the moment, but what it's really doing is cutting away everything that doesn't look like Jesus. He's conforming us to the image of His Son. So in an ultimate sense, can there really anything hurt us? In a sense, we are immortal, aren't we? Nothing can kill us because they who die in Christ don't really die. Remember, that's what Jesus told Martha. He that believes in me, though he be dead, yet shall he live. He that liveth and believeth in me shall never die. You're mortal. You you say, well, I'm sick and I've got this disease. Well, yeah, but you're fixing to be healed. You're, fixing, you're almost well. That's what John Newton, that when he was dying, that someone of his old friend leaned over and said, how are you, John? He said, I'm almost well. <laughs> We're almost <laughs> the final healing is still out there for us. And we're working towards that. So in a very real sense, and Barry, I think that's where you were going with your comment, correct? Is that in a real sense, some of the commentators point out that yes, nothing really can harm the one who is under the wings of God Almighty. And so it makes this puzzling psalm a little more real when you think of it in that light. Yes, John. Right? Absolutely. That's exactly right. The things that God unconditionally promises you, the I wills. And I said it sounds a whole lot like Ezekiel 36. Some of the statements of the New Covenant where God says, I will, I will, I will, I will. You see the same things here. And these things are not conditional. They are not. These things are reality to us. God is basically saying to whoever puts their trust in me, I'll, I'll be there for them. They will not trust in me. And as so often is stated, whosoever believes in me shall not be confounded. He that believes on me shall not be ashamed. In other words, I will never let them down. Did you see this term in verse 14? Because He has set His love upon me. 
That's an interesting expression because that's the very expression that Moses, or God, through Moses, uses in Deuteronomy 6, that God, when He set His love on Israel, He didn't choose them, and it's, it's, it's election. It, that's what election is. It's God setting, placing his, elect, his, his love on someone. But we don't talk about setting our love. We talk about falling in love. You know, I was just walking along, sort of like Sue Sunday. A trip fell right into it. Just accidental. Just fell in love. The Bible doesn't speak in those terms. God set His love. Notice the idea of choice and volition. I chose to love you. And it goes on to say, why? And He said, because I did. Because I did. I mean, that's about the best answer you're ever going to get. For His own reasons, known only to Him, He decided to love you. He set His love on Israel. And notice here, the person who trusts in God sets his love on God. You don't fall in love with God. You set your love on God. You choose. It's an act of the will to love God Almighty. Interesting terminology here. So anyway, at the end of the day, it is true that until the day that God has determined for my death, I am immortal. A thousand may fall at my left, ten thousand at my right. It's not going to happen to me until that day that God has ordained. Till that day, I'm untouchable. Oh, no, I'm not untouchable. Why, uh, why didn't Jesus just go ahead and jump off the temple? Was the devil right in quoting this and applying it to Jesus? What's, what's the problem? You see, it's one thing to trip and fall off the pinnacle of the temple. It's another thing to jump off. You see the difference? One is presumption. I am presuming on God's grace. I am basically saying, because God, you've said this, I've got you over the barrel, so I'm going to do this to make you do that. It is a manipulation of God. And what I have noticed with Christian people and the way they apply the promises of God Oftentimes, what they're calling trusting God's promise is, in fact, presuming on the promise. It is trying to manipulate God to get God to do what they want Him to do. Which is a very different thing from simply trusting God and Him keeping me in all my ways. In other words, the way that He has marked out for me. That's what I'm seeking. That's what I'm trusting Him to preserve me in. That's what He's protecting me from. But I'm not basically saying anything I want, anything I choose, I'm just going to trust God and make Him do it. Make Him give it. That's presumption. And that's exactly what the devil was trying to get Jesus to do by jumping off the pinnacle of the temple. Okay, we'll, we'll stop here. And any other comments? Anybody else see more about this than I do? Yeah, Anthony, what you got? We want to use the promises of God to get the world when the promises are designed to keep us from the world. And yeah, right. Anybody else got a comment on? Uh, interesting psalm when you think about it, isn't it. These things are not quite as easy sometimes as the first glance. First glance, you say, "Oh yeah, that's just that's a great psalm. That's that's a good one." Yeah. T-
Yeah, there it puts the onus that something's wrong with me and my faith if something bad is happening to me. And I'm just saying Paul should have had a deeper life course or something because he had bad things happen to him all the time. Every time he turns around, he, somebody should have told him the secret here. Uh, he just didn't get it. You think about it. You just needed somebody with the word of faith to get him there or something. I don't know. But yeah, there's the problem. And uh, And by the way, may I point out that Paul on the shipwreck, Jesus had appeared to him in Jerusalem and said, you're going to have to witness before me in Rome. I'm sending you to Rome. Well, that's pretty good. I could go to Rome. Whoever thought it would be as a prisoner on a ship that sinks. And then when he's saved, picking up sticks, he gets bit by a snake. Do you you see the mysterious ways of God? One of the things that Psalm 89 was teaching me and I tried to convey at the conference last night, is you dare not try to live your life by the providence of God. Providence, you'll never figure out what God is doing by looking at providence. You live your life by His precepts, what He tells you to do, what He's revealed for you to do. You go crazy, you go nuts trying to figure out His providence. And it's hard to read providence. Two different people read it the same way. Same event happens and one person says that's bad and another person says that's good. just depends on which side of the rope, side of the fence you're on. What we do know is at the end, all the pieces of divine providence all fall together to work to this one end. What God ordained for His glory in the very beginning is going to be the final result. It's a strange way he's working this thing out, you understand. Who would have thought Paul's trip to Rome would have worked out like that? And yet at the end, exactly what God ordained took place. All right, let's spend some time in prayer and